Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all those undergoing a pandemic. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. I guess that includes all of us, right? Yeah. (laughs) This week, we're bringing you preaching tips on Numbers 11, 24 to 30, which is the first reading scheduled for the lectionary on May 31st, 2020, which also happens to be Pentecost Sunday. And we have a special treat for you today. That's right. Our guest exegete this week is Dr. Reed Carlson. Reed is an assistant professor of biblical studies at the United Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia and in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. He is also an ordained minister in the Episcopal Church and has Pentecostal roots, so he is the perfect person to be talking to today. He earned his Ph.D. at Harvard University, and his scholarly and churchly interests include spirit possession in the Bible and how that relates to similar phenomena in the Global South, and ecumenism, especially among charismatic and progressive Christians. We recommend to you his article, Hannah at Pentecost, on recognizing spirit phenomena in early Jewish literature. It's from the Journal of Pentecostal Theology, and we'll uh, put a link to it on our website. Dr. Reed Carlson, welcome to First Reading. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. Great. Yeah, it's it's fun to see you again. We have run into each other very briefly since we overlapped at Luther Seminary, but this may be the longest conversation we've actually had since then. I'm I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Great. So now at the time of the recording, we are still in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know that you and your spouse both have full-time gigs and a child as well. So uh, I'm curious to know, what is one of the weirdest or craziest things going on at your home right now due to everybody being together? So our son is currently two and a half and uh, we, we weren't planning on potty training him, but since we're all at home anyway, we thought, well, why not try? So we got one of those little uh, like miniature toilets with a little electronic flushing sound. And I think that was a mistake because that's primarily what he is most interested in. And so he goes and he mostly just goes in there, sits on it fully clothed and pushes the button, the flush button over and over again. Yeah. Wait, wait until he realizes that the real toilet flushing noise sends things down the invisible hole. Yeah. <laughs> never to return. Hopefully right. never to return. If they, if they come back and then something's gone wrong. Right. Right. Terribly wrong. Now, Reed, uh, you, you have Pentecostal roots and you got your MA at Luther Seminary. You're married to a Lutheran pastor and you're an ordained Episcopal priest. So you really embody what we were talking about in your bio, that you're passionate about ecumenism. Uh, in, in your own experience, how have you seen that kind of uh, cooperation or ecumenism between charismatic and progressive Christians really work its best? So um, my kind of uncommon ecclesial identity is expressed a lot in my scholarship. Uh, one of the more kind of exciting things that I've been able to participate in is, is particularly among uh, a younger generation of Pentecostal scholars. Pentecostals are becoming more aware of their place in the wider church and the unique contribution that they can make to broader conversations. And in part, this is a place that has only recently been uh, been made available to them. And so that's part of, I think, why the voice hasn't always been there. And uh, as, as Pentecostals continue to differentiate and think about the trajectory of their own tradition, I think 
uh, many are finding that they're that they have more in common with different groups of Christians than they once thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the holiday of Pentecost and the biblical tradition of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is really relevant to Pentecostal churches. And it's really great to have you on a week where that is in the atmosphere as we're talking about uh, the texts for Pentecost Sunday. The first reading is also a Holy Spirit-focused text. And uh, before we get into our conversation about it, Reed, would you be willing to uh, read it for us? I would be happy to. I will read the version that probably a lot of people will be using on Sunday, the NRSV. Great. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. It's such a great story. It's been one of my favorites ever since I encountered it when I was in the parish one Sunday and and preached on it. And it was just like, there's so much there that you can preach on that is just so wonderful. Um, But it's really a big topic, this idea of spirit possession, even unrelated from prophecy, which is its own massive topic. So as we're going into this, what should preachers watch out for or just kind of know in advance of the huge topic that this is of prophecy and spirit possession, um, not just in the Bible, but in our modern context today? I think one of the rich things about this text, but also one of the difficulties of it, is that there is a considerable degree of ambiguity And I think that comes through in a lot of the secondary literature. There are a lot of different opinions about what is going on here. And different translations will translate certain key words in in different ways, kind of indicating their, their kind of take on it. And so I think for a lot of preachers, it's not an exceptionally well known text, but it is one that gets debated a lot. Regardless of kind of how one feels about it, I expect that even just in the hearing, especially if you're using the NRSV, a lot of people's minds are going to go to the ecstatic prophecy, uh, you know, and perhaps Pentecostal altar call type of stuff. Regardless of the context that you're in, people Mm -hmm. will be thinking of a charismatic context. And so I think Mm. depending on the context of, of your hearers, addressing that, even if that is not something that you want to talk about, but acknowledging it, that it's in the room, I think would be really helpful. 
Mm-hmm. And even if we sort of get into the minds of the people who put together the RCL, uh, it's probable that this particular text was included for Pentecost Sunday because of those those themes of prophecy and uh, spirit indwelling and all of that happening in this text. So all of those sort of allusions are in the air. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. been called the Old Testament Pentecost, which is, of course, uh, funny because the Old Testament already has a Pentecost. <laughs> That's right. <but laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so let's so let's um, let's drill down into the context a little bit more and uh, focus in on that word ruach, that word um, spirit in Hebrew. What what might you say would be helpful for preachers to know about this word in the larger ancient Near Eastern context um, and in the Bible itself? Sure. If you go to your your Hebrew dictionary, if you uh, happen to purchase one of those while you were in seminary and kind of dust it off and uh, look up Ruach, uh, you'll, you'll likely see three, three main ideas come out of it, spirit, wind, and breath. And this is one of those words, I think, that a lot of people know, particularly in uh, the Pentecostal context that I grew up. This was one of the, you know, I, I, I can remember evangelists saying Ruach really loud and getting mm-hmm. the going and, 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 uh, <laughs> Uh, so I think that idea is important. There's a reason that people are familiar with that, because it is important. One, one thing that I see people missing sometimes is that uh, often in translation, that, that act of translating, it, it forces us to kind of make a decision between the three. And it is, I think, significant for us to, to consider that this is a distinction that we make in English and in many modern languages, that Hebrew doesn't necessarily want to make or doesn't need to make. Mm. And there are plenty of texts that play with all three meanings. Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones comes to mind as one of these places where Ruach appears several times. And it's, it is uh, kind of dancing around these different meanings of, of spirit and breath and, and wind. And I think this reflects a wider understanding of winds that we see in the ancient Near East. One of the most exciting people writing about this topic today is actually uh, an Emory grad named Ingrid Lilly. I don't know if either of you uh, yeah. know her. Or, yeah. yeah. So she she's written some uh, fascinating comparative stuff looking at Ruach text in the Hebrew Bible and in Babylonian medical and cosmological texts. And one of the things that she brings out from the frankly, the larger body of literature that, that, that comes out of the ancient Near East on this is, is how kind of foundational spirits are to a person's overall health and well-being. Uh, spirits are, or winds, breath are flowing all around us. They're coming in and out of us, and they are contributing to almost every aspect of our lives. And they're the same winds and spirits that are active that, are, that were active in creation. She talks about the story of Enuma Elish, mm-hmm. but our minds uh, in a biblical mindset might also go to uh, various creation stories throughout the Bible. And uh, it, it reflects, uh, for me, really a different idea about the self uh, as, as a person. As kind of modern Western people, we like to think of ourselves as uh, a buffered self. We have these these barriers. We are uh, individuals. We we determine uh, kind of what comes in and what comes out, and 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 so on. Mm-hmm. And um, in in a 
ancient context, the and really a pre-modern context, we see notions of the self that are a little bit more porous. And mm -hmm. a spirit that's outside, a spirit that's inside, a spirit that transfers from one person to another, like a virus that transfers from one person to another, <laughs> uh, is is not necessarily something we can control. And uh, agency plays a big deal in this. In a modern context, if we think about uh, possession, the, the maybe the highest goal is to be self-possessed. And if you are possessed mm -hmm. by something else, that might be something that is that is your fault, you know, or something that you've invited in, something like that. But particularly when you look at uh, wider literature around spirit possession, not just ancient literature, but ethnographic studies on cultures around the world that practice possession, it, it seems like that kind of modern Western idea is somewhat idiosyncratic in terms of broader human experience with, mm -hmm. with these ideas. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the sort of fluidity of agency with regard to that, because in, in our text for today, the the way that uh, Moses with the spirit of God sort of represents God and that 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 sense of uh, who is exhibiting agency kind of gets passed around as the spirit of God gets passed around. That fluidity is seems to be a feature of what we're looking at in this particular passage. Yeah, there is a, a kind of materiality to the spirit in a lot of texts in the Bible. Uh, in this, in this, the idea that there's a portion of the spirit that can be shared from Moses, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of the language around spirits that we like the verbs we find in the Bible, filling uh, Elisha and Elijah, a doubling of the spirit, like doubling the portion, uh, and and I think sometimes we think of spirits as like a different uh, as as being immaterial. Uh, for good reason, given our intellectual tradition. But sure. I think a lot of these texts uh, think of it as uh, a, as a thing that can be felt as having a degree of, of materiality. Yeah, I've done a little bit of work on body words or body images in the Bible. And in my experience, it seems like there are um, things that we would call bodies, like hands, uh, you know, face, that kind of thing. And then there's also this category of things that are um, almost considered bodies that we might not consider bodies. Um, I think ruach is one of them that has a, a, a corporeality to it, a bodiness to it that we don't think about. Um, name is another one mm. that has a bodiness mm -hmm. to it that we don't really think yeah. about. Um, and and I, I love this idea of, of how we are um, more porous or more permeable um, because I think I've heard a lot of people in the midst of this pandemic talk about how exhausting Zoom meetings are, you know, how it's just there's something more physically exhausting about having a conversation through a, a laptop or a tablet than if you're having it in person. And part of me thinks it's because our bodies are trying to do two things at once. Um, one is our intellectual body knows that we are talking to another person. And the rest of our body is trying to pick up on all of those body cues that mm -hmm. we get when we're in the physical pre presence of someone else. And they're just gone. So yeah. it's like our body is on overdrive trying to have a human interaction with something that is not physically human. Yeah, it's it's almost a, a, a disconnect between our mind and our body. My, my mind tells me that we're interacting, that we're together. And my body's like, uh, no, we're not. I can't. I can't smell yes. them. I can't sense them. Right. Uh, they're they're not here. Who are you talking to? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are talking to yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe this is a moment to to say, preachers. Oh, those of you that are trying to do church via you know YouTube or Zoom or something like that. And bless yes, you. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> 
Now, uh, speaking of trying to do church over Zoom, this is a wilderness complaint story, uh, maybe appropriately enough. Um, But it's an interesting complaint story in that this time both Moses and the people are raising a complaint to God. Um, So how should we understand both of those complaints? A lot of times when the people are complaining in the wilderness, we talk about it today as kind of like, oh, those stubborn people, oh, those people, you know, not with a whole lot of sympathy. Um, So how should we understand their complaint? And how should we understand Moses's complaint as well? Yeah, the the context, of course, of this story is uh, for me, at least, dizzying. I find the book of Numbers dizzying and and difficult to kind of chart. The the fact that we find it in the midst of this complaint is, I I think, in part uh, serving that kind of uh, fancy seminary word chiasm, <laughs> the, the chiasm mm-hmm. that we find in in the Pentateuch. You have mirroring wilderness stories on either side of the Sinai revelation. And so this story kind of mirrors the, uh, the, the story in Exodus where, um, where Moses and his father-in-law Jethro are, are divvying up, you know, the, the so-called uh, delegation stories and, mm-hmm. and so on. So, so in part, I think it's, it's showing um, that that might be one reason why it, it is here, but more, I, I suppose, importantly or more theologically i as as i was thinking about this aspect in in your notes of the story i i, the, the, I was wondering i think for the first time if there isn't a kind of them's the breaksness to this story and mm-hmm. and a kind of uh, lament on this is this is the cost of leading people sometimes particularly when you're in the wilderness interesting Well, how about let's talk a little bit about the relationship between God speaking to Moses here and God taking some of the spirit from Moses. There there seems to be kind of an interesting play here between the divine word and the divine spirit. Yeah, one one of the things I love about this story is that it defies a lot of the expectations that I think a lot of people have when they think about spirit possession or spirit phenomena. I think whether we like it or not, what is large in the imagination of probably a lot of your listeners are images from, I don't know, like The Exorcist. And this story represents really well uh, something that I am cutely calling the three C's of of spirit phenomena in in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, The three C's are corporate, cultivated, and collaborative. Oh, cultivated. I wasn't expecting that. that All right, break it down. Corporate, cultivated, and collaborative. So first of all, we often expect uh, possession or spirit stuff to be kind of a private kind Mm. of thing. uh, And uh, in in an individual often, especially like an exorcism or something like that. But this is corporate. This is a lot of people. And in fact, there are a lot of texts in the Old Testament that talk about you know, for instance, Joel three one, the the pouring out of of spirit mm-hmm. on lots of people, and the spirit text in Isaiah. It seems like uh, a, a a good portion of the spirit text in the Bible. It, it's corporate. It's more than one person, and we might even say public, but that doesn't start with C, so it doesn't <laughs> count. It's not true. <laughs> so, 
that's one. Cultivated, it's something that is intentional. It's something, and it also is something that takes a little bit of of, of work, something that you're trying mm. to make happen in, in some way. And, and so, uh, uh, and this is something that comes in part from some of my work looking at, uh, ethnographic studies of spirit possession practices around the world, especially in the global South. But spirit possession is not usually like a one-off thing. It's a, it's a lifelong endeavor. It's a professional skill that people develop and use as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, as, as their job. And, and I think, uh, it's, it's a little bit in this text, but elsewhere, it's something that is cultivated on purpose. It's not something that they're stricken with. It's maybe not something that controlled, that would be a good C (laughs) word to add here. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's intentionally cultivated. And then, and then, uh, the last one collaborative, uh, it is, uh, perhaps, a it, for this story, it's it's so short. It's it's maybe hard to see, but I I see it as a collaborative collaborative effort between God's Spirit and and the elders. And in general, I think that is how the the Hebrew Bible Old Testament talks about when someone is spirit empowered. That person's personality, that person's agency, is not suspended in in those moments. Uh, they're still there, so to speak, and it's a kind of spirit partnership, uh, a collaboration mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. some way. I so. think in addition, the on the point of the sort of collective nature of this, it is it is a text about leadership, right? So it's, uh, it's saying that the Spirit of God is an essential component of leadership. They, they couldn't just sort of be uh, delegated certain tasks to do. They had to sort of wait for this experience of a spirit empowerment in order to be uh, participate in the like a food distribution program. <laughs> I mean even even something like that these elders had to have some of the same spirit that was in Moses in them. That shows a little bit of the the collective and collaborative uh, aspects of this. Yeah. Mm. Collective. Another another yeah. good C word. C word. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get more. I like the the 14 Cs of spirit <laughs> empowerment. <laughs> We got, we got a good right, book going right. here. <laughs> this is a this is a text that uh, does talk about prophecy, and maybe we can talk for just a minute about since the experience of prophecy is so different across cultures, and we're trying to, in a way to get into the mind of the authors of this story. Well, I wonder what they had in mind when they said that the when the spirit was put upon these elders, they prophesied that that Hebrew word lehitnabe. What, what do you think's going on there? Yeah, so uh, for your listeners who who like to to look at the Hebrew, maybe you maybe looked at the Hebrew of this text and and you noticed that the word for prophesy here is in this uh, hitpael stem uh, or the DT or various various term terms for it, and and this is not the most frequent way of reflecting this verb in Hebrew. It often appears in the nifal or the n stem. Uh, and there are a few places in the Bible where, where the the lehitnabe form appears, the, the form that we see here in Numbers eleven, and the uh, NRSV often translates it as prophetic ecstasy. It's not always translated as prophetic ecstasy, but it often uses prophetic ecstasy. But there's a lot of debate about this if that is appropriate or not. Uh, Hermann Gunkel, who uh, wrote this book about uh, the the effects of the spirit at the end of the 
uh, 19th century, he he actually translated this as glossolalia. That's how he understood this term. And he related oh. this text to, huh. to Acts 2. Probably in light of various conversations that, ha- that have happened since then, a, a better way of understanding this verb is to is to translate it as to play the prophet. That's one that a lot of the scholarly literature has kind of settled on, is as to play the prophet. But but people disagree about uh, about what that what, what the kind of valence of that is. Is it, it's and the the example I sometimes use is is it the sense of impersonating a police mm. officer, and then it's bad, or is it the sense of Say there is a car accident and you kind of appoint yourself to direct traffic around the accident until the until the, the proper authorities arrive or something like that. Both both can be like to play a role, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think you could read this story in either direction. And mm-hmm. and I don't know. I don't know if there's enough evidence to kind of choose one way or the other. I am partial towards the latter as seeing this as uh, these elders are doing what prophets do and they're and they're doing it well they're doing it because it's necessary they're not in the office of prophet they're not you know official mm-hmm. prophets so to speak they're not the prophet of prophets like Moses but but they're doing they're they're playing the part yeah and i i kind of like that in the context mm-hmm. of this passage too because of the way that uh the we're told by the narrator that god put some of the spirit that was in Moses also on these elders. But then there's some sort of, uh, in a way, like evidence that that transaction took place because uh, once God had placed the spirit on them, they were they prophesied like Moses prophesied. They, they acted like Moses did as a way of showing that this transaction actually took place. Mm. Yeah. How about the fact that it happened once and the text very specifically says it did not continue or it did not happen again? What are we to make of that? I think that is a good example of that ambiguity of how you want to read it. Like it it happened once because it was a special occasion, but it's not supposed to happen anymore. That's That's certainly one way that you can read it. And another way to read it is, bummer, they didn't do it again. They could have. They they had they had the spirit. Moses wants them to. Mm-hmm. They didn't. And mm-hmm. and to the extent it it seems like the whole thing is leading up to that line by Moses, and and they blew it. If you are uh, leading a group of people, say you're a pastor leading a church, and and you have a fantastic event of of you know initiative that you're doing, and everyone comes together, and they do it, and you're like yes. The Holy Spirit's here. We're making it happen. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And then they never do it again. <laughs> is is that what this is? I wonder. Yeah, if you're if you're into sort of uh, redaction critical uh, approaches, this is maybe one of those places where you could imagine an editor saying, oh, this is great, this sort of democratization of the spirit, but not too much, you know, make sure we still give Moses pride of place here. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just yeah. dial it back a could little be, bit. Could be, could <laughs> yeah. be. Well, let's get into verse 26, which is really uh, an interesting little like side note on this narrative, <laughs> right? Because turns out that in addition to sort of the main event, there were a couple guys who weren't a part of the big party, but they still had some of the same experience. Reed, I wonder what you make of that whole little side note there about Eldad and Maydad. Why, why are they in this story? Yeah, 
Yeah, so they are uh, they are fascinating characters, and they don't show up again, which allows just for so much yeah. wonderful speculation uh, throughout throughout the centuries about who these who these two people were. First, why uh, why aren't they with the group? Did they just not want to come? Uh, were they? Uh, you know, some people have speculated perhaps they weren't. Uh, perhaps they had some status. Uh, you know, this is maybe going beyond the text, but it's interesting as a, to, a thing to think about. Perhaps something about them precluded them from coming. Maybe they're, uh, you know, ritually impure. Maybe they're uh, not elders, so to speak. They weren't recognized by the community, but God empowered them or something like that. Or So it's not even clear that they're, that they're at fault or anything for not coming. Maybe they were told not to come, or maybe they weren't recognized for, for the role. I think... Uh, one thing that'll preach here, I think, is that they do this outside of the oversight of Moses. They've got the spirit and and Moses is not there pulling the strings or approving it. And when this is brought to Moses's attention, he's like, yeah, that's what's supposed mm-hmm. to happen. This is how it's supposed to work. <laughs> if we want to, you know, jump into you know, if we want to be anachronistic and, and, and jump into, into Christian settings, particularly during this, this crisis, I've seen a lot of anxiety from uh, pastors and church leaders about uh, people doing churchy things without a clergy person there to kind of make sure they're doing it right. And, and this is a story that, if, if you want to read it in that way, kind of m- might be pushing against that and saying, you got to trust that the people of God, the people of the Spirit are going to do it. And they're going to do it right. And they don't need you. They don't need your help uh, to to do it. So I think that's one direction you can go with it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the passage seems to kind of drive. I'm kind of heading towards the the end of our text here, uh, up to that uh, interchange between Joshua and Moses about Eldad and Medad prophesying outside of the you know confines of the ritual, and. Um, What's Joshua's hang up here? Like, what's he concerned about? And how do we understand Moses' response, which seems to be sort of the, the payoff of the story? I think if you want to look at this in that kind of uh, redaction critical way or even that historical way of trying to, trying to place this text in a particular historical time frame, it could be that Joshua is embodying that that voice that the story is trying mm. to contradict. That that there are uh, people in the in the community, whatever whatever historical point in the in the arc of of Israel and and Judah and, and early Judaism that we maybe want to place it. That this is a, a, almost a kind of parable, and Joshua is a kind of negative example of look if if what you are saying is that the prophets who do this need to stop, then, then Moses himself thinks you're wrong. That, that may be one, one way of, of looking at it. Uh, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. Another way of looking at it is seeing this as part of a discernment process in the community of who of who can speak with Moses's authority. And you have Joshua who seems to be the, the, mm-hmm. the next Moses and is, is presented particularly at the beginning of Joshua as, as the next Moses. And this may be 
a little hint or a little opening to say, you know what, there are others. There are others who inherit the, the mosaic tradition, who, who have the authority. And that authority is given by God's spirit. What you're talking about, I think, encompasses something that I really love about the Old Testament, but can be really difficult for some people, which is the fact that the book encompasses and holds together dialogues. Um, it never very often presents us with a single point of view that we are supposed to adhere to when it comes to God or when it comes to doing ministry. Um, it, it presents dialogues and debates. And, and what you're talking about, I think, could lead to some interesting sermons that themselves could hold intention, could encompass dialogues or debates about who speaks with God's voice or with God's authority. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And in this case, the, the ambiguity that I keep referencing in the story, that this is maybe one way in which it is a strength is is that it's it's difficult to say with absolute certainty that that this story totally approves of what the 70 elders are doing or, or that this isn't some kind of um, consolation prize or something like that and, and and at the same time you you can't be certain that it it disapproves either and and mm-hmm. so, it, it allows for people, I suppose, to keep it in, in balance. They can, they can preach it, so to speak, in whichever direction they want to go. <laughs> well, that seems like a great way to transition into talking about how preachers might handle a text like this. So, um, you know, we had sort of the same, uh, same deal with Easter when we were encouraging preachers to consider using the first reading as their sermon text. Well, here we are on Pentecost Sunday where everybody's sort of teed up to to preach from Acts 2. And here we are saying, well, give, give Numbers 11 a bit of a look. Uh, if, if preachers were going to preach from this, uh, what, where, where might we want to be kind of careful if we were going to preach a text like this? Yeah, one, one thing that comes to mind immediately is recognizing the increasingly diverse spiritual practices that we find in mm-hmm. churches today. As the world continues to globalize, I think many people are finding that there is a greater variety of spiritual practices in their churches mm-hmm. than there once was. And even for pastors who do not count, you know, charismatic worship or, you know, I don't know, speaking in tongues, etc., these kinds of things, even for those who don't include this as part of their piety or even something that they necessarily believe in. I am astonished by how frequently I encounter people in churches of all different kinds who have Mm -hmm. had experiences like this or Mm -hmm. who are curious about it or who base their entire faith around it. And this isn't just a kind of, hey, let's let's be ecumenical. It's it's a justice issue because so many uh, Christians from the global south practice their spirituality, practice their Christianity in this way. And especially as people move across borders, as um, fewer and fewer people have a single ecclesial identity mm-hmm. anymore, you know, mm-hmm. um, increasingly people in church are like, well, I grew up Catholic, but then I uh, dated this person in high school. And so I went to his evangelical youth group. And then I got into Buddhism in college for a while. And it, you're like, so, 
So uh, it is important to, I think, be careful about what we say and how we characterize these kinds of practices, especially from the pulpit. One example that comes to mind and something that I have preached about before is moving beyond a kind of rational versus ecstatic binary. I think this is a way that a lot of people look and teach biblical texts. I, I think actually I see a lot in the New Testament people talking about Paul. Uh, people look at things that Paul wrote and look, he's so orderly and he has this complicated systematic thought, blah, blah, blah. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But in any case, uh, clearly someone who thinks so rationally and who is informed by such, uh, you know, illustrious philosophical, Greek philosophical thought clearly was no ecstatic <laughs> maniac. Uh, and and uh, aside from being wrong historically, I think it's also a misunderstanding of what it means to be a human being, uh, mm. to be to be ecstatic doesn't mean that you can't be rational. That's a that, that's an idea that I think disproportionately is oppressive, particularly to women. I think it gets used as a way of keeping women out of leadership positions and as a way of telling young people to be quiet, telling people of color that their tradition doesn't have as much wisdom as the more uh, dry, stolid traditions and, and so on. So so I think this is, it, it's not just a, hey, let's be ecumenical and, and include the charismatic things. I, I really see it as a as a justice issue and, and something to watch out, even if that isn't what you want to preach about. Being careful in your language about how you talk about that is, is important. Yeah, I think that's really significant. And Anna, like getting down into the text itself, one of the ways that I've heard this this text used often is to really suck all of the spirit out of it almost and make it kind of like uh, Moses's <laughs> business tips for delegation, where the text itself is just so full of the the power and activity of God. You don't want to, as a preacher, to um, be, because of whatever sort of theological uh, background or biases you might be bringing to the text, you don't want to cancel out all of the, all of the the juice of of God's power at work in this text. So that's one thing I would say to to watch out for as well. One of the preaching pitfalls I have is actually a preaching pitfall for preaching Acts and is a preaching angle mm. for preaching this text. Because I think often in sermons that I hear about Acts, the uh, the pouring out of God's Spirit is a bit domesticated. It's kind of seen as the pouring out of God's Spirit on us and those who are within our realms. That it's so great that we have had the Spirit poured out on us. And what this text really challenges in a sermon like that is that quite explicitly here, the spirit is poured out on someone who is not supposed to have it, at least to certain folks in the text. So um, I think that kind of an angle sets up a nice, um, a nice maybe conversation partner. It's, this is a little bit of an apology for why you w might want to preach from the first reading on Pentecost in that it sort of fills out the whole picture of Acts um, in some way. So that's one preaching angle slash preaching apology that I would throw up at this point. I wouldn't throw it up. I would throw it out. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, one of the things that really struck me as I was reflecting on this text in the moment that we're in is the way that uh, in this text, the spirit of God isn't confined by spatial limitations. The ritual part of this is kind of going down at the tent of meeting with Moses, with the gathered elders there. And yet the 
the power of God is actually also happening over there somewhere else, uh, you know, in a different location, as if to say that uh, God's power isn't limited by where you happen to be standing at a, at a particular time. And that, that seems to be uh, coincidentally quite a relevant message for uh, pastors and churches who are trying to figure out how to be a spiritual community when they have to be socially distant from one another. That this is a this is a text that really preaches that God can be at work and the Spirit of God can be poured out on us all, even if we're not physically present with one another. And that you could you could take that into a whole a whole sermon that would be immensely encouraging to your congregation. Mm-hmm. And that actually links to something that you talked about, Reed, which is that this passage defies expectations in some ways. And I think in a lot of ways, God defies our expectations in that moment. So I just love that phrase, defies expectations. I think that could be a nice little sermon hook if you're going to take that angle. I think the another angle that I um, heard today that I am just itching to preach on now is this idea of justice. Uh, Reed, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about that, how the the discussion around God's spirit today is not just a theoretical one. It's not just a theological one. It's not even just a practical pietistic one. It quite literally is an issue of justice. And I would really encourage our folks to take up that issue in at least some way in your sermon. I think, Reed, you started this discussion by saying, name the elephant in the room. And I think that would be a really important and and helpful way to do it. So that, that could be a whole angle for your sermon. If you choose not to have it as your whole angle, please do include it in some way. I think it it sheds new light on this conversation that's really helpful. Yeah, I can uh, add to that. I think that's a really important point, Rachel. One of the other ways that we can say this text defies so many of, of, the, of our expectations is about how to understand prophets and prophecy. Part of what the reception history of this text struggles with is the fact that it says that all these people prophesied And then it's never recorded what it is that they prophesied. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, uh, both, you know, early Christian interpreters and early Jewish interpreters speculating about, oh, it's it's something about the latter days. It's Gog and Magog. It's uh, they saw the Shekinah. They saw, you know, all they saw Jerusalem, etc. And and uh, but it's not there. It's not it's not recorded you know, what, what it, what it is that, that, that they, that they prophesied or more specifically how it is that they played the part Mm -hmm. of the prophet. And we are, we are seasoned to understand that when someone is prophesying, they're saying something. And depending on the tradition you come from, uh, what they're saying varies. If you come from certain traditions, it's a social justice message, speaking truth to power, etc. If you come from another tradition, they're predicting the future, or they are accurately describing the, the present in, in some way. You know, all of these have precedent in the Bible, of course. There isn't a right or a wrong. But I think it is significant if we if we take that definition. Uh, these 70 elders were playing the prophet. They were being the prophet. And that is what is significant. That is what is worth remembering in the story. Not what they said or what they saw. Maybe they saw and said great stuff. But the fact that they are 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 being a prophet, even though Moses is the best prophet. Everyone admits in the Bible, Moses is the prophet, the best prophet ever. 
Here are people who, in the presence of the best prophet ever, are playing the prophet in the fullest sense of what that can be, uh, whatever it is. And so it's, it, it is a call to explore what it means to be a prophet for you. And maybe it doesn't mean having a, a visionary experience like Ezekiel, and maybe it doesn't mean uh, going and preaching in the temple like Jeremiah, but, 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 but what else? What else is playing a prophet for you? Mm. I, I really like that, especially because I think you could do a nice jump from there to an idea about generous leadership. You know, you made the point that they're playing the part of the prophet in the presence of the greatest prophet. It's like meeting your music hero and having them ask you to sing a song to them. I mean, there's there's something about that that would be mortifying and terrifying, but but it would also be such a gift in that moment to have someone who is the greatest at something be so generous in that moment. Um, and, and I think generosity is a word that it kind of is very um, rich in our psyche right now because of the moment we're living in. So something about a generous sermon or a generous leadership could be a really powerful Pentecostal sermon, I think. Absolutely. Pentecost sermon. Could be a really powerful <laughs> Pentecostal. There we go. Or Pentecostal. Or, pe- or Pentecostal. <laughs> or a Pentecostal, yeah. yeah. Well, I think we should probably wrap up our conversation here. We're kind of getting to that time. And wow, this has turned out to be a really intriguing and mysterious and wonderful little text here and one that really can speak right into the situation that we're all in so uh you know thank you all for just a great conversation reed it's been so great having you on the podcast thanks for joining us thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed it Now remember, friends, if you enjoyed our conversation today, head on over to the website for a link to Dr. Carlson's article. Um, Subscribe to the podcast so that you get the latest updates. Uh, Tell one friend or, hey, it's Pentecost, so maybe tell 50 friends about this podcast. Until next time, though, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNich. Credit to Blue Dot Sessions for some music this week. And thanks to you all for listening. Happy preaching.